Well, we're going to uh, look at what I call the missing beatitude. You know, in uh, the Bible, uh, there are the beatitudes that are found in Matthew chapter 5, and there are a list of them, Jesus says, more blessed to, and so on. But there's one that we find buried in uh, Acts chapter 20 that I want us to look at today. Uh, I had quite an interesting uh, event on the way here today. Being a hot day, I thought I'd call into Pret-a-Manger, one of the cheapest places to get a drink, so I went in there to get a, uh, some water. Uh, and I, I noticed the place was pretty empty. I thought, well, everybody's out of town. So the guy, he said, is that all you want? I said, yeah, thank you. So I went down, sat down, and uh, a couple of minutes later he came over to me and said, are you American? I knew at this point that things were going to go rather strange. I don't know how he could imagine I was American, but I said, well, no, I'm not American. He said, well, would you like a free coffee? So he said, we've made too much coffee. There's nobody here to drink it. Would you like a free coffee? So on your way back home, if you want to call in, Pret, you might still get a free coffee. So I said, you know, this is remarkable. I said, I'm, I'm on my way to a church just down the road, the Globe Church, and my text today, it is more blessed to give than to receive. By this time, he really thought he was dealing with a weirdo, but uh, he, he was very polite about it and said, oh, thank you, well, here's your coffee. And when I arrived here, I gave it to Stephen Fletcher because it's more blessed to give than to receive. The government actually believe that statement, uh, and they have a thing called gift aid. So wearing my um, finance hat at the church here for a moment, many people uh, give by gift aid, which is wonderful. The marvellous thing about gift aid, if you give a pound and you pay tax, you're at work, the government gives the tax back to the charity, to the church in this instance. So for every pound you give... Church gets £1.25. It's impossible to get a bargain like that anywhere else in the world. So can I just say, many, many people give by gift aid. And it's to you I'm speaking. Because uh, we need you to sign a gift aid form. And uh, if you haven't done so, uh, please would you just see myself or James after, perhaps when we're over in Wilcox House. And it's a very simple form to complete that enables us to show to the government that you are giving, that you're bona fide, and we make a claim. It actually makes a huge difference to our income. Uh, Last year, it was something like £30,000 gift aid recovery. It's massive, isn't it? So it's a a win-win. If, on the other hand, you don't regularly give in this way, you can do. Whether you're a gift aid, uh, whether you earn tax or not, whether you give tax or not, please, uh, if you were interested in giving in that way, Please uh, see me for one of those forms. We'll be delighted to help you in that regard. Now then, please uh, turn back with me to Acts chapter 20, if you've not done so already. Acts and chapter 20. And we're going to look at this passage, a very poignant passage, uh, where Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian church, the leaders of the church there, uh, who he's worked with for three years. It's, it's, a, it's a heart-rending uh, moment for him to say farewell, not least of all because... He knows and they know he's never going to see them again. And it's in that context that we have uh, this words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, as you well know, we live in a culture that's obsessed with self. Our consumerist culture bombards us with the message, it's all about you. There's even a coffee advert that's all about you. You. 
self-help books are bestsellers. Uh, the TV, radio adverts predominantly target self. Our obsession with self has infected just about every area of life. And it has some very ugly repercussions. Some of you here are teachers. Some of you are teachers in the infant school. You will know that violence by little ones, by five, six-year-olds against their teachers is not, sadly, uncommon today because I want my own way. But it's not just little infants that are beset with that, is there? The husband walks out on his wife and justifies his adultery, justifies running off with another woman with the words, I must be free to do my own thing. Road rage is a terrible common daily hazard. In the workplace, you'll be aware that many people are ready to trample over their colleagues in order to climb the greasy pole. Our culture is obsessed with self. It's the dominant trait of the world in which we live in. It is also the very antithesis, the very opposite of the Christian message and all that Christ stands for. Therefore, our culture presents a massive challenge to us. How do we live as Christians, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are that? How do we live as Christians in a culture that is so obsessed with self? Because surely we know we're not immune from the problem. I love me and don't you forget it. It was one of the songs of my era, which is a long, long time ago, back in the 50s and 60s. But the culture that many people have grown with in the last 30 years has been all about you. And it's the air that we breathe, it's the, the water that we swim in. And we fool ourselves, if we're a Christian, to think that somehow it doesn't affect us, somehow we're immune from it. I hope you know that's not the case. I'm clear in saying I'm the oldest person here. I'm the oldest person in this church. And the one thing I've discovered about myself is this. That going into my 72nd year, I am incredibly selfish. My default position is to think, how is this going to affect me? What's in this for me? I've been a Christian 50 years. I still grapple with that problem daily. And I guess a lot of my brothers and sisters who are Christians do as well. So it's not a problem that we're immune from. Indeed, it's a very real and present danger. And if anything is designed to challenge Christ's call upon us and take up the baton of the gospel, it's this idol of self which is so pervasive today. Which is why we need to be reminded of this missing beatitude here in Acts chapter 20. We don't know when the Lord Jesus said these words. We know that in Matthew 5, where we have the so-called Beatitudes, that Jesus goes up a mountain, he teaches the disciples, it's more blessed, it's more blessed, it's more blessed, blessed are the meek. We don't know when he said this. But the interesting thing is, if you ask the average man in the street, whoever that person may be, what is Christianity about? their answer would be along the lines of, well, it's about 
giving, isn't it? It's about giving. There is still that trait, there is still that, that, that vestige in the culture, in society, in people's awareness, even who aren't Christians, that somehow Christianity is tied up with giving, looking out for other people. And here's this assertion of Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But why? Well, I want to share three reasons with you from this passage why it is. It's more blessed to give than receive because it's what God is like. God is the giving God. At the very core of his being, God lives in other person-centeredness. He lives in a very mysterious relationship. Three in one, one in three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. No matter how long we lived, if we were given a thousand lives, we would never truly understand the profound mystery which is God in relationship. But God lives in community. And in the heart of that community is other person-centeredness. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Holy Spirit loves to serve the Father and the Son. God lives in a community of other person-centeredness. It's a deep mystery, but the Bible reveals that's exactly what God is like. It's very hard for us in our fallen culture to grasp what that must be like. But the Bible affirms it time and time again. Maybe it's easiest for us to grasp it when we think of the most famous verse in the Bible, which is, we've heard it already today, it's the most famous verse in the Bible. What would you say? Caitlin? John, are you sure about that? Well, it's called the first <laughs> <laughs> He spilt the beans, he? Yes. John 3, 16. God so loved, what did he do? He gave. Who did he give? He gave his most precious belonging. He didn't send an angel. He didn't raise up another prophet. He sent his own son. He gave of himself. That's the pinnacle of his self-giving love. It's the nature of God. We can easily overlook that or be familiar with that, can't we, from that wonderful verse. God so loved that he gave. It's the nature of love to give, isn't it? That's the essence of love. You want to give. Give of yourself. Give of your possessions. It's always rather wonderful when there's a, there's a marriage, isn't there? And you have these two impoverished young people and they're promising all their worldly goods to one another, which uh, they could probably cram into a cardboard box. It brings a slight wry grin to one's face. But it's a lovely, lovely sentiment, isn't it? All that I have, I give to you. It's the nature of love. It's the nature of giving. And God is just like that. And at the cross, we see the ultimate extent of his giving. This God, who by definition is all-powerful, how does he use his power? If you think about the world in which we live, there are many rich and powerful people. But eventually, sooner or later, such is the nature of the human heart, that we would use that wealth, that power, for our own purposes, 
even to become corrupt, even to be oppressive. And history is littered with that, isn't it? But here's God, the God who made the heaven and earth and everything in it, the God who just by a word spoke this cosmos into being, all-powerful, so awesome that we couldn't begin to imagine just how great he is. How does he use his power? How does he bend his power? Does he corrupt it? No, not at all. He gives his son in the most supreme act of generosity. No surprise then that when the Apostle Paul calls these Ephesian elders together, there in verse 28, what does he say to them? He said, you be shepherds. Where's he got that idea from, a shepherd? Well, it goes right the way back to the Old Testament, doesn't it? And the most famous psalm of all, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, says David. You elders, you church leaders, you who have been given responsibility for for the care of God's people, God's sheep. You shepherds, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Follow the pattern and example of the good and great shepherd, says the Apostle Paul to these Ephesians. And we know if we're a Christian, don't we? that you and I are never more like Christ than when we are giving. That's when we're at our best, when we are giving. That's the hallmark. It's to be the hallmark of the elders. It's to be the hallmark of all God's people. People often say, if you say, what's your ambition? Oh, I want to be more like Jesus. What does that quite look like? Well, the clothes that Paul puts on it here are very practical, aren't they? It's actually to be a giver. That's the mark of the family likeness. A young woman came in the church uh, today and she got a welcome and I heard her voice and I saw her. I thought, "Mm, you're familiar. I said, have you been before? She said, well, I came once before. But my sister, I've come to meet my sister. Immediately, Jane Fletcher was on the welcome said, oh, I know who that is. You see, there was a family likeness. There's a family likeness. What's the family likeness of the Christian? The man, the woman that follows the Lord Jesus. It is to be a giver. Because that's what the Father is like. He gives. Why is it more blessed to give than receive? Because it's the very nature. It's the proof, in one sense, that we are part of this. Which is why... We need to get a grip on grace. Look what Paul says in verse 32. I commit you, he says to these elders, to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who are satisfied, who are sanctified. You see, the word of God's grace isn't something passive. It's very active. Grace is very active. Because at the heart of grace is giving. And giving is very active. It can't be passive, can it? Any act of generosity, any act of kindness, any act of thoughtfulness is active. And Paul says, I'm committing you to the word of God's grace. God's grace is powerful because it's proactive. That's what I want to see happening in your life, he says to these elders, because the church is going to become under attack. There's going to be false teachers coming to this church in Ephesus. You're going to need to be on your God. You're going to need to so love the people of God that you're ready to endure with them. You're ready to give to them. 
I commit you to the word of God's grace. Grace, it's like a builder, isn't it? It builds, it builds giving into our life. Grace produces a giver. It can't help but do it. I remember uh, some years ago, uh, a young man when I was pastor at Chesington down in Surrey, and quite remarkably, he came to a service. I didn't know this was going on in his life. He came because the day before, somebody just knocked on the door and said, do you want to come to church? Uh, at the time, he was living with this girl. This girl uh, was the daughter of an elder of a church down in the south of England. Uh, she was running away from Christianity and all things to do with her parents' faith. And she was living with this guy. He came along. He came along. It happened to be a baptismal service. And at that service, God met with him. It was quite remarkable. And the next day, well, that evening, he said, can I come and see you tomorrow? Yeah, of course you can. So he came and he said, I went home last night. And he said, the first thing I did, I said to, I said to my girlfriend, I, I can't sleep with you. She said, well, why not? I've become a Christian. And I, I can't use you like that anymore for my own ends. So he slept on the settee. He came and, and said, look, I want you, I've got, a trouble, I've got a, an issue with women. I want you, if you see me behaving at all uh, improperly with any of the young women in the church, I want you to jump on me like a ton of bricks. Wow. This is one day after becoming a Christian. This, this ain't normal. I've got to tell you, this is quite unusual. And he said, the thing is, also, how can I serve? I've just realized how much God has given me in Christ. And I've been running from him for years and he's met with me. And I just want to give something back in return. Not to earn God's favor, but as a result of God's favor in his life. That's what it does, you see. Grace produces a giver. So why is it more blessed to give than receive? Firstly, because it's the very nature of God the Father. But there's a second reason. And the second reason is because it's the happiest life to live. It really is. The word blessed could be interpreted, could be translated happy. Uh, we don't do that because happy can be a little bit frivolous, can't it? And happy is kind of dependent upon life going well. I'm happy when life is going well. When life is not going well, well I come a bit unhappy. So we don't use the word happy. But essentially at core, happiness is bound up with blessedness, shalom, with peace and prosperity and well-being. Why is it more blessed to give than to receive? Because that actually is the happiest life of all. It's how God has wired us up to behave. The Bible calls him the blessed God. Blessedness is something that he has designed, he has purposed, he has made us for happiness. C.S. Lewis says, if, if there is this deep instinct in us for happiness, then we must reckon that God has wired us up that way, that he wants us to be happy, and he does. And happiness, blessedness, is to live under his rule and reign, under him and his way, and that's the blessed life. 
But we think instinctively, because our first parents did, that God is a heavenly spoil sport, a kind of cosmic grump who's just there to spoil our lives. That is so deeply bound in us as to be unbelievable. But at heart, that's what we tend to think. Well, if I follow God, it's going to spoil my life. Really? What's so great about life at the moment? You must get real here. But you see, that's how we think. That's how we feel. But God hasn't got our best interest at heart. It's a lie from the pit. It's a lie from the devil. God has designed us to be happy and he wants us to be happy and our happiness is found in him. That's the source of blessedness. That's where it all flows from. And when Jesus comes into our life, he begins to turn on their head those lies and deceptions about God. And look how Paul puts it in verse 32. This is what he says. I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst all those who who are sanctified. The gospel brings us an inheritance. An inheritance is a future word. There's a long-standing, well, not so long-standing, it's more short-standing joke in our family. Now that I've done the three score years and ten, the minds of our children, there are four of them, are turning to a thing called inheritance. It's the unmentionable thing, but it's there, I know it's there. Who's going to get what? One of them was bold enough the other day to say, could I have that? <laughs> pointing to a... Uh, actually, pointing to, Hannah should be pleased about that. Is pointing to the, the painting that Hannah had done. Could I have that? You see, they're already thinking about the inheritance. Christian, you've got an inheritance. Peter says, the thing about this inheritance is that unlike any earthly inheritance which ultimately will spoil and fade and perish, never as good as you thought it was going to be. This inheritance will never spoil, will never fade, will never perish. What is this inheritance? Well, the Bible tells us it's to have a new body. My, a new body like the resurrection body of Jesus. Wow, that's going to be fantastic. Remember some of the things he did. Do you remember how he was able to go from one place to another? No, no queuing up at the airport. Just straight. That's astonishing, isn't it? What? Think of this world in which we live in. We're going to live in a new heaven, a new earth. Don't you sometimes look at the world and think, this is fantastic. This is amazing. And this is a world that is spoiled by sin, corrupted by our rebellion against God. What when all those things that cause us to cry and cause us to grieve and cause us desperate pain, what when they're all taken away? What will that be like? And what will it be like when we gain the liberty of the children of God that Romans talks about? In other words, when we are who God has designed us to be. We're told, aren't we, that uh, by some scientists, I don't know how they come up with these things, that we only use 1% of our brain power. I think they were, had me in mind where they mentioned that. But I don't know how they come up with these figures. It's ridiculous, really, isn't it? But it is astonishing. It's astonishing that man can go to the moon. In my lifetime, man, back in the 1969, 
man landed on the moon. I once interviewed the eighth man who had landed and walked on the moon, Jim Irwin. A claim to fame. <laughs> but he said, the greatest thing is not that man walks on the moon. The greatest thing is that Jesus walked on the earth. He went there and he, he had this overwhelming sense of God. He wasn't a Christian. He came back. I don't know if he became a Christian on the moon. That would be rather cool, wouldn't it? The first Christian on the moon. I don't know if that was the case. But certainly by the time he came back, he'd come to know Christ. He spent the rest of his life, another 15, 20 years, proclaiming Christ. But these fantastic things that the human mind can design and invent and, and explore, what's it going to be like when the rains are off? Because those minds are fallen. When all that's taken away, what's it going to be like? This is our inheritance. A new body, a new heaven, a new earth. But that's not the best of it. The best of it is Jesus. It's to see him. It's faith to give way to sight. It's to spend eternity with the one who's loved us and given himself for us. If you love somebody, you simply want to be with them. And when you're not with them, you feel the ache of it. You feel part of you is not there, is missing, something's missing. You see, the inheritance that the Bible talks about is God himself. The story of salvation goes full orb. It starts in a garden, it ends in a city. It starts with God walking with men and women in the cool of the day beautiful picture of intimacy and closeness and friendship and love and it ends with every tear being wiped away and those people that have been saved rescued redeemed by his son down through the ages from every tribe from every nation millions of them in intimacy with him forever that's our inheritance now paul says to these Ephesian elders. That's what's waiting. If that's what's waiting, better than any earthly inheritance, if that's what's waiting, that is the blessed life. But you've already got it in part now because God has come by his Holy Spirit to witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. You're now walking with God day by day. It is the best life. It's not the easiest life. But it is the best life because he is good. And he is always good. Even when our dear friends, Toby and Millie, are taken to be from us with him, he is still good. And they'll tell us that one day. God is good all the time. It is more blessed to give than receive. Why? It's the nature of God. Why? Because it really is the happiest life. When I was in business, I, I, I did a lot of work with very wealthy people. I noticed this one thing. There wasn't a great deal of happiness around. I had one incident when I was leaving my business, when one of these guys, who I really got on well with, really liked him a lot, a brilliant businessman, he rang me up. He said, oh, Trevor, you're, you're only going into this uh, Christian ministry for the money. It's like these American evangelists. You're just doing it for the money. Very funny, Harry. Very good. 
It's just tongue-in-cheek. Then he said, you know what? I do envy you. I do envy you. Because you know who you are and what you want to do. Here's a guy, this is 30 years ago, had 100 million pounds. Today he was a billionaire. I do envy you. He was a lovely Jewish man who had the privilege of having the word of God in the Old Testament in his background. He wasn't happy. This is happiness. It is to know your sins forgiven. It is to know the intimacy of Christ walking with me day by day. It is to know that no matter what comes my way for good or ill, he is in charge. He is good. But there's a last reason why it's more blessed to give and receive. And it's simply this. It's how the gospel travels on in the world. This is how God has designed the gospel should travel on through the world. Don't you sometimes think, uh, don't you ever do this? You probably don't because you've not got an odd-going mind like mine, but it's just when you read this, you think, actually, here's Paul speaking to these Ephesian elders and to think that somehow or another, if I could but see it, there's a line that stretches through the generations, over centuries, over millennia, in fact, as to how the gospel has come from them to me 20 centuries later. It's travelled on through the world. How's it done that? Just by ordinary men and women gossiping the gospel. Going to work each day, trying to live for the glory of the God who has rescued them, seeking in acts of kindness and generosity to put on display what, what God has done in their life. Taking the opportunity to tell people what it is he's done. That's how the gospel travels on. How did you become a Christian? I guarantee there was a person, if not more than one person involved, in doing this. They gave of themselves for you to hear the gospel. It cost them, not simply money, probably didn't cost them much money, it cost them their time, it cost them their patience, it cost them prayer, it probably cost them tears, because they longed for you to come to Christ. I was with a young man last last Tuesday evening in a prayer meeting. He was crying. He was a youth leader. He was crying over some of the young men in his youth group. God will honour that. That's how the gospel travels, isn't it? Look what Paul says. He, he, he says to them, look, I've role modelled this beatitude to you. That's what he's saying in effect. In verses 3, th- 33 to 34, he said, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. I've not wanted you to give to me. No, no. These hands of mine have supplied my own needs and that of my companions. So how does the gospel travel from Paul into the life of these people in Ephesus? Here's the answer. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, it's more blessed to give than to receive. He didn't want to get rich off these people, but rather he wanted to make them rich in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how it worked out. He didn't exercise his rights, but through hard work, he gave the gospel to them. He looked out for the weak and poor. How do you make somebody rich? Well, this is the way. Paul wanted to make people rich in the Lord Jesus. 
Can you think of a greater ambition than that? Think of your friends. Think of your family. Think of those people who aren't yet Christians. What do you want for them? It's this, isn't it? You want them to be rich in Christ. You want them to know it's more blessed to have Jesus as my saviour than anything you could ever imagine. It's the most blessed life to follow him. It's the most wonderful thing. That's what I want. And what a marvellous thing. This is the way the gospel travels. That God puts in our heart a desire for other people to know Christ. And over that bridge, over that, through that avenue of our lives, God steps into their life. This is what was happening in Ephesus, wasn't it? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, giving is not simply about money. We tend to think of it like that. At least I do, wearing my financial hat. But no, it is that. Because God is the God of our wallet. And money is a very practical way in which we can bless other people and enable the gospel to travel on in the world. But it's far more richer and broader and wonderful than simply giving money. Because giving money can actually be the easy thing, can't it? Again, I had all these incidents. When I, was, when I was leaving my business, people just opened their heart up to me, which is quite an interesting thing. You want to try it. Go in tomorrow or Tuesday, say you're leaving, and then people will just tell you some things. No, it may not work like that. These were people I had good relationships with. There's one guy, he's called Mac. And he told me the story. Mac was quite a character. Not a very savoury character, a bit of a Dell boy, really. He had two wives. He was a bigamist. He had two wives. Kept one in the north, one in the south. Why you'd want two, I can't imagine. One is quite enough, but he had two. <laughs> he had two wives. And I don't dare say he had other things going on as well. But we were out for a lunch one day. He knew I was, wouldn't be around for much longer. And he told me this about himself. He said... I've got a cousin. He's a very bright man. He's a barrister, in fact. He was, but he he's, was struck with mental illness. Now he's in a care home. I went to the care home the other day to visit him. After ten minutes, I'd run out of things to say. So I got my wallet out, and I took out £100. Now, stay with me, because this is 30 years ago, so it's probably like £500. I rolled it up and I put it in his top pocket. There was a, a little nurse nearby who saw me, came over, took it out, took the money out of my cousin's top pocket and put it back in mine and said, he doesn't need your money, he needs your time. He needs your time. You see, time is the one commodity we've all got. We've all got it in equal measure. And giving our time is a very precious thing to do. It's costly, isn't it? Because if we give our time to that person that's in need, that's in trouble, that's struggling, it means I can't do this other thing over here. But it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because how's the gospel going to travel into their life unless I give my time? Time is just one of the factors, isn't it? Just looking out for people, when we're together in church, looking out for who's on their own, who's looking a bit lost, 
Don't think if somebody comes up to you today, by the way, that they think you're a bit lost. But you know what I mean. Putting our weight in the teams that we're in, that's just a way of giving to other people. It's, it just seems so ordinary, but the Christian life is full of wonderful, ordinary things. Like doing stuff for other people on time, like playing my part in the team. It's a way of giving. Giving my time, giving my energy. Looking out for other people. Those small acts of kindness. What about that story that Jonty told the other day, wasn't it? When they're in the restaurant in Zizi's. I've been to that restaurant four times since and it's not happened to me. <laughs> For those of you who are visitors, Pastor Jonty here was in Zizi's with his uh, family, with his wife and three boys, and uh, they'd been very kindly given some vouchers and they were working out what they could have and what they could afford, what was left for dessert. So somebody had obviously overheard this because once they'd made their choice, this guy, as, they were, as, as he was going out, he said, don't worry, I've paid your bill. I've paid your bill. Wow. John T. said he was talking about it for days after. Well, you would do, wouldn't you? But what a wonderful thing. I had no idea if that guy was a Christian or not. He presumably overheard something of their conversation. But what a wonderful way to bless other people, isn't it? You see, this is the thing. We remember two kinds of people in this world. The first is the miserly. We all remember a miser, somebody who was mean and grabbing and self-interested. We don't remember them in the best kind of way and for the best kind of reasons. But there's a second kind. It's the giver. It's the giver. We've all got people in our lives who've been generous to us, haven't we? We remember them. We treasure them. We thank God for them. We always remember a giver. I had a, I was at a conference with a guy a year or two back, and he came up to me and said, See this watch? Yeah? He said, you worked with a guy called John Tyndall for, for a long time, didn't you? I said, yeah. He said, 25 years ago, I admired his watch. He took it off and gave it to me. I was an impoverished student. I've never forgotten the act of generosity. Wow. We all remember a giver. What an ambition to be givers. If we're a Christian here today, to be a giver to reflect and show and demonstrate in our lives it is more blessed to give than receive. And if you're here this afternoon, you're not yet a Christian, it's great that you're here. I'm so pleased you're here. I want you to come again or to come with a friend and think about this Jesus, this giver. Because your greatest need is to receive what he has to give you. He's given you life. He wants to give you new life. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you that you are just so wonderfully generous that we can never outgive you. Your word tells us you own a cattle on a thousand hills. The 
the wealth in every mine. Lord God, there's not one ounce of this world over which you do not say it's mine, it belongs to you. And yet, how do you use it? You use it to bless us. You send the rain, your word says, on the just and the unjust, on people who have regard for you and people who don't. You're indiscriminate in your kindness and your goodness and your generosity. But Lord God, many of us in this room this afternoon are so grateful that you have sent the Lord Jesus to be our saviour. You so loved us that you gave him. And Father, therefore, we want to reflect something of your likeness. We want to be those through whom the gospel travels on in this world. That you will use our life, however short or long it might be, for your glory. That we want to be known as generous people. We want to be well remembered for those who held everything with an open hand for your use. Lord, please, by your spirit, help us to become those kind of people. Help us to be those through whom the gospel travels on in this world. We give you thanks today for our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, and ask, Lord, that we might bear the family likeness as your people, as Globe Church. Amen.